0: This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Heartland Seuss Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett, Director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy and Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. I received a book late last year that I regret I was unable to get to until recently. The book's title is A Tale of Two Climates, One Real, One Imaginary, by physicist and numerical analyst formerly for the Armed Forces and the aerospace industry, Bill Peckney. I'm pleased to have Bill here to discuss the book today. Bill, thanks for
1: joining us. And thanks for having me, uh, Sterling. Um, A little background on me. uh, Born and raised on Chicago's southwest side near Midway Airport. Air uh, has been a lifelong interest for me, going as far back as I can remember. My standing alongside my uh, dad as a toddler, uh, looking out the window at the frequent uh, evening thunderstorms in the Midwest, and and, uh, and because of the safety of being inside and with him, I was never fearful of lightning or thunder, um, or at least not that I can remember anyway. And, uh, and ever since I, I, I go back to that and I'm amazed that the uh, mother nature's wonder, uh, as a result of that help from my parents.
0: Well, how did that um, lead? Uh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah.
1: And, uh, and, and that all led in a series of events, um, Living right near Midway Airport in Chicago, if you've ever been through there, uh, I marvelled at—you uh, know—I'd be outside playing sandlot baseball and marveling at how the air that I breathed could support the those monstrous flying machines. And uh, so, I and I also learned to fly at Midway Airport and quickly learned about clear air turbulence. And and then it went on from there: uh, bachelor of science, master of science degrees in physics from. Uh, DePaul University in Chicago, and Georgia Tech in Atlanta. Graduate studies in meteorology at Florida State University and the University of Utah. And then 47 years in the workforce and companies encompassing two careers. Um, And the thread through those two careers, uh, the first 27 were as as an army officer uh, twenty two of them is on active duty as a soldier scientist and five as a civil servant, and then another second career in the, in the aerospace industry and I guess the most exciting and what got me started, uh, all, albeit not to write a book but in in the atmospheric physics business, uh, applied atmospheric physics, was the that first job I had with the place called Navy uh, Weather Research Facility. Uh, which also included the the U.S. Navy hurricane hunters. And and so that first job coming out of Florida State University, uh, um, I uh, became a member and and meteorologist with uh, the Navy hurricane hunters for that 1969 hurricane season. And that was the year of Project Storm Fury when they actually got to seed, Hurricane Debbie, which... Uh, Yeah, uh, we flew uh, the 3rd and 4th of August uh, of 1969, 52 years ago, uh, 53, Uh, and so that was the whole 47-year work experience with the thread being atmospheric physics throughout them. That was the the highlight of them all, in my opinion, the Project Storm Fury. I don't know how much you want to know about that. It was a hurricane modification experiment, and, uh, and, and uh, Navy jets dropped silver iodide into the okay. eye wall of the hurricane, and we in the hurricane on our aircraft were down below at a mm-hmm. measly 1,000-foot altitude above the surface of the water, uh, flying these racetrack patterns
0: yeah. in and
1: out of the hurricane through the rain bands uh, for about a 10-hour period. Wow. And and so that was certainly the most exciting. And uh, as it turns out, it was hot and wet and exciting.
0: <laughs> well, it eventually, it eventually brought you, you know, at the end of your, uh, I guess, your working career, uh, you know, by the time you had retired, climate change mm-hmm. was in the news. And everyone yeah. was worried about climate change. And so you wrote this book. The title of your book right. is A Tale of Two Climates. One Real, One Imaginary. Now, that's both a provocative and an evocative title. What are the two climates, and what did you hope to accomplish with a book about them?
1: Well, uh, the first of the two is the real climate, that global, <laughs> air quotes, trend in temperature that, that <laughs> we experience over the long haul. Um, in my research, it's uh, it's the cyclic, uh, na- natural mild, even beneficial and nutritious uh, to all life uh, temperature trends uh, that we experience. And it's the result of, I think, the sun, water, and planetary motion, not humans. And uh, in my background, it's grounded in that time-honored scientific method and rearview mirror of history that that scientists go through over the years, like I did. And the reproducible, empirical, the the observations and the measurements, the evidence that that scientific method demands. If you don't mind, I'd just like to uh, uh, rattle off a quick quote by Dr. Richard Feynman. I don't know if you remember him. He won the Nobel Prize in physics back in 1965 and was a member of the uh, presidential Commission that investigated the 86 explosion of the shuttle Challenger, and this and and this is what he often said to his students at Caltech. He said, "If it and there he meant a hypothesis or, or, or a guess, if it disagrees with experience, with experiment, it's wrong." And that simple statement is the key to science. It doesn't make any difference how beautiful your guess is. It doesn't make any difference how smart you are, who made the guess, or what his name is. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. More, importantly, it.
0: more importantly, in this field, it doesn't matter how many people believe it. If it disagrees yeah. with experience and data, it's wrong.
1: So that's the real climate. <laughs> uh, the other that I, that's the basis of the book is that imaginary climate, Uh, which says it's too hot, it's catastrophic, it's human-caused, and it's supposed to have killed us all yesterday. And I think you'll agree it's based on that other type of so-called pseudoscience uh, called consensus that's uh, with us so profoundly these days. Consensus And and modeling. Uh, they yeah, the, yeah. models models
0: they're... take the place of real measurement
1: and experience and those and those models that we have now run way too hot right and and they've been doing that for decades and even getting worse now and uh as john christie said i think it was last week on laura ingram on the fox channel fox news channel the there's just so much that we don't understand yet about our atmosphere, and and the prevalent. And, well, and that's what he said, and then my uh, continuation of that is that these two, these climate computer models are tuned to predict. The, they know the answer, and they pre- and they tune them to get that answer, and you they know- run way hot, and they're not getting any better. No that you know
0: despite yeah. it, it uh thirty years of fiddling with them they're getting worse every every iteration produces higher predicted temperatures that that l- correspond less than than the actual temperatures it's um yeah. it's amazing it's the it's the it's one of the only it's the only discipline I can think of where the worse you do the more confident you are you're right
1: uh <laughs> <laughs> That's a, every, every, report,
0: that? every report, they're more and more confident, they're more certain than ever, despite the fact that they have to admit that their models are performing worse. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I'll say this. <laughs> um, you know, when you read the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Reports, I say intergovernmental right. panel. These aren't scientists necessarily. Mm-hmm. They're government appointees. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the body of the document, at least until the last one, they always contained uh, a chart and a discussion of the factors that uh, impact climate. And it changed over the years. They'd add a factor. They'd subtract a factor. They'd combine factors. But it would say what the factor was, what the likely influence was, what the range of influence was, and how well they understood it. And the only factors they understood well – were co2 and methane and not clouds Go ahead. Uh, no 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 the, the as i said the only factors they say in their own rating system that they well understood were co2 and methane clouds ocean circulation patterns mm-hmm. all sorts of other things they didn't understand well they they and they 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 said it poorly or not well and yet they were confident the only two factors they understood were the only things driving anything. <laughs> yeah, all these other so factors I, have an effect, but we don't understand them, and so we're sure they have no real effect.
1: And, and, and so that just begs my question. Why Why do they use them and say that? Yeah. I think it's fear-mongering. It's the easy way for uh, money power and control. That's so, my simple, simple-minded opinion on why they do this.
0: Um, what What was your hope? What What were you hoping to accomplish when you wrote the book, Bill?
1: Well, it was to show that other real side of of the issue that doesn't get talked about much uh, these days, and then it's also to provide an an easy to understand big picture look to help people enjoy a greater understanding of our incredible earth atmosphere system. And it's what miraculous ability to nourish all life on the planet. So I wanted everyone to understand that our climate changes normally and continually and in a controlled manner. And that uh, ultimately I wanted not just everybody, but especially impressionable children to know that they didn't don't need to be afraid of global warming uh, specifically or climate change in general Uh, the climate's always changing so study it respect it adapt to it like we do in in hawaii or texas or utah or arizona and most important of all enjoy our amazing normal and ever-changing climate so that's what i Hope to get across.
0: View it with wonder, not fear. Yes. So, Bill, we at the Heartland Institute, across all of our platforms, Climate Realism, Climate at a Glance, Climate Change Weekly, for, for just a few examples, uh, we've long discussed the difference between weather and climate. You also discuss it in your book. Why is distinguishing between the difference between the two so critical when addressing scare-of-the-day, catastrophic climate change claims? Yes.
1: Why the... And the answer is uh, the first and foremost in my mind is the for this fear mongering that's happening so often. For example, a bad tornado event happens and it's horrific. But when you look at the trend, as uh, the, over many decades, as I do in the book, the, the trend in tornadoes, strong tornadoes, is down, and and so that's weather. It's in a Uh, Not the trend, but the the events like tornadoes that are events at a specific location and time. For example, our local temperature here in Utah varies widely, day to night, summer to winter. And then on the other side is climate, uh, the long-term, large large area trend in a series, a long series of weather events. 30 years. That's how they...
0: That's the technical yes. definition is, is uh, the, the weather for 30 years. Uh, so when conducting the four years of research you put into this book, what evidence did you find that humans were causing catastrophic climate change? Uh, did the data confirm that claim?
1: I found zero evidence, and I emphasize the word evidence, uh, reproducible evidence of human cause catastrophic climate change And the way I did that is I looked into the rearview mirror of history of the actual uh, temperature measurements uh, going back uh, from uh, tens of decades of, to hundreds to thousands to millions to even billions of years of geological records and I found that that at times temperatures in the past have been much higher. Uh, than they are now, as well as lower historically. Um, They vary and ditto for carbon dioxide. And even before humans walked the face of the earth, so you you can't blame those much higher temperatures of the past strictly on humans as so many try to do today. Also, there's that uh, long-term cyclic nature to our Earthly temperature history—it's the the glacial nature of our world, interspersed with interglacial warm periods, occurring roughly every what hundred thousand years or so, and uh, lasting the interglacials lasting ten to fifteen thousand years. Uh, and we're in one right now. We're in the thirteen, about roughly the thirteen thousandth year of it interglacial warm period, and we are supposed to be warming. This is, if you believe history repeats itself, there's nothing unusual about this. And maybe we should be looking and and throwing potentially trillions of dollars instead of it warming at what we're gonna do if it starts to cool. Uh, I mean, really cool, not just the zigzag up and down of every day and, and every season. Uh, but, uh,
0: yeah, because cooling, uh, the glacial periods have been terrible for life on Earth and human beings. So. Um, so CO2 is commonly referred to as a pollutant in discussions of climate change. What are your thoughts on this?
1: Um, oh, I have a lot. We could go on for hours on this, but I'll uh, summarize quickly. Uh, carbon dioxide, I've looked at very carefully. Um and it's not a pollutant. It's an odorless, colorless, i.e. invisible, and non-toxic gas in our air. And even the EPA recognizes, uh, albeit begrudgingly, that it's not a pollutant. not Because it's not on their list, the pollutants that they grade all of us, all of our states on. Um, and I'm sure you've seen it. The satellite imagery clearly shows for decades now that co2 has been greening our planet it's not the only thing but the majority of the greening that they've seen in our planet over three four decades at least and so there's a need uh for more of it in our air not less to support our ever-growing population and co2 gets that bad rap as be- because it's a byproduct of fossil fuel combustion uh, along with uh, coming out the tailpipes and smokestacks, uh, the the actual pollutants the carbon monoxide, the nitrogen and sulfur oxides, the particulates and the volatile organic compounds. I mean, and, it's, it, it, it yeah. is,
0: it's necessary to life on Earth. We, yes, uh, plants as, go away with water no vapor, CO2.
1: Yeah, as this water vapor, which is also a byproduct of that fossil fuel combustion product. But it's H2O that demoni- uh, is not demonized like CO2 is. And so I think we need to stop demonizing CO2 and recognize that, that it's a gas of life, and without it, along with water, we die. So, Bill, in closing, what are some of the
0: other important topics you cover in your book that our audience should know about, and tell them how they can
1: get your book? Okay. Uh, the first one, my wife Nancy's favorite, is about co2 and hco that we just discussed and she repeatedly reminds me that she's learned about photosynthesis way back as a kid in elementary school and the truth of it hasn't changed over the years but now somehow that truth about co2 is being demonized instead of praised and so that's one chapter eight uh uh chapter 10 on tornadoes uh uh has a story about my close encounter with a bad one in Chicago back in 1967, and it shows a lot of the evidence of a, that clearly downward trend in strong tornadoes since 1950. Uh, chapter 11 on hurricanes, again, shows the trend, the evidential trend in hurricane frequency and intensity are, are flat to slightly downward in trend. And then Chapter 12, uh, which I'm sure you can appreciate, uh, living in uh, in Texas, uh, about wildfires and droughts and heat waves, like we have here in Utah. Yeah, and especially all the multitude of misinformation that floods the media these days. We have a drought. Them. You know,
0: we're uh, parts of Texas are in drought right now, and um, mm-hmm. so we've we've gone a year. Uh, last year was very wet. In fact, we've had about five or to seven. Wet years, Um, Mm -hmm. all but one of them above average rainfall. Uh, I think three years ago we had below average, but only slightly below average, certainly not sort of drought. Mm -hmm. But if you look back historically, uh, they talk about this drought as if it's historic. Oh, my gosh, it's historic. Oh, my gosh, it's historic. No, I'm sorry, folks. We had seven-year droughts in the past. We had 50-year droughts in the past. Uh, One year – drought is not historic by any measure.
1: Yeah, not even a... Same with us here in Utah. Not even a, a, a seven-year drought here. If you look back to the uh, Dust Bowl era, what led to that, the droughts yeah. that led up to that. Yeah. So, um, I agree it, totally. People,
0: people the one, don't, don't understand...
1: Ahead. Well, of course, they don't understand history,
0: but they don't understand context. Yeah. Uh. How to put things in context. And that's critical to understand climate. Uh, what we're experiencing now is weather. It's a year's mm-hmm. bad weather. Uh, that doesn't make it a drought. We're not in a historic drought in the West, not just Texas, but
1: across the West. Yeah. And, and the, if you look at it, uh, big picture, the, Eastern half of the United States tends to be wet. Western half of the United States tends to be dry. Yeah. And it would be nice if it, the wetness and dryness just doesn't <laughs> happen in the places we need it. And if we're so worried about drought, uh, maybe we need to have some serious thought going on, as as it is in Utah, about uh, um, uh, Pumping water down yeah. from places where it's prolific and
0: uh, yeah, well that's you know that's sort of one of the one of the real things I think has fed into this uh, misunderstanding uh, California a hundred and fifty years ago and more was one of the least populated regions on the continental United States, but even by Native Americans they weren't mm-hmm. they weren't thick there, and the reason was it was a very very arid Place. It wasn't until uh, the federal government got in the business of uh, opening it up and then, most importantly, diverting water from the central part of the United States, the Colorado River, to the west to make the desert bloom like a rose. Everyone thinks that, that, you know, I'm sorry, the Native Americans didn't vacation on the beach and go surfing. They lived there. And it was arid, and they lived with little water most of the time, and they learned to adapt to that. Modern Californians have learned to live with abundant water, but that water isn't native to, to the region. It's shift in. And so when you've got more and more people taking more and more of a limited resource, when the limited resource starts drying up, <laughs> it's not climate's fault. It's the number of people using the resource uh, for various different purposes: agriculture, drinking water, watering lawns. Um, yeah. uh, it's 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 not that the river itself is drying up. It's people are drying it up through
1: overuse. And it's not just California that where this is happening either. Uh, the population of Utah Utah's always been there. Just uh, probably even more so than. Uh, California at least further away from the ocean and um yeah it's, it's high desert plateau yeah and it, and it's the population's growing here is i think it is in texas too
0: oh yeah well texas yeah. texas yeah texas one of the fastest growing states uh much to my dismay there we go uh so uh so how do they get your book bill
1: okay um you can get it uh off of Amazon.com, it's right now at the sale price of twenty-four dollars fifty-nine cents for the hardcover, or nine dollars fifty-nine cents for the electronic version. And oh, by the way, that fifty-nine cents is just a reference to fifty-nine degrees Fahrenheit. If you know what I mean, uh, you can get it. You can get it indirectly off of my website, uh, TwoClimates.org. You can enjoy the website and then click the buy button that uh, takes you to Amazon, or uh, you can get it directly from me at bill at twoclimates dot org. Uh, just uh, send an email to, and I'll send a signed hardcover copy and a couple of bookmarks uh, for that same twenty four dollar fifty nine cent price, and I pay the shipping and tax. So that's and, where to get it,
0: and I encourage my audience to get it. To, uh, take it to heart. Share it with uh, their neighbors, and most importantly, the children. Because, like you say, this is one of the reasons you you wrote the book is trying to uh, to get them not to 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 view the climate, view the weather with wonder. Uh, scientific discovery is as wonderful. Not fear it, well, to, Bill. To <laughs> help
1: them, yeah. to help them learn how to think, not what to think. Go ahead.
0: Perfect. So it's been a pleasure to have you today on the show. I want to thank you on behalf of myself and our listeners.
1: And I thank you uh, uh Sterling. It's been an honor to be with you today.
0: Listeners, thanks for checking us today. Please check out A Tale of Two Climates. Examine its arguments for yourself and uh and if you buy the book, uh write it on on uh on Amazon, give it some reviews. Uh Let's drive up uh, the rating and uh, get the good news about climate out there. And please continue to go to Heartland's various climate and environment websites as we follow the progress of energy and environmental laws and regulations that affect you. In addition, if you're not already receiving these podcasts daily on your favorite device, go to iTunes and subscribe. And when you have the time, please rate our podcast on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. Thanks. Take care. Bye.